Are we doing a show? Is this the show? Good show. Is okay. what the show? This. Is this the show? Are we doing the show? Is it recording? Are we good? <laughs> it feels like right. it's good material. Should Why we... are we always recording? That feels complicated. Because you never know when you're going to say something cool or funny. Rarely, Let's if ever. Let's spell a drink. Mm, that's, yeah. <laughs> that was a really good introduction, so I'm glad I gave you that. Hi, Chris. Hi, Derek. How's it going? It's going quite well. And you? Good. We teased that we would have you back on mm-hmm. to discuss services and story of service-oriented architecture. So we had a discussion about GraphQL last time, and that was starting to dovetail into some of your thoughts on SOA, mm-hmm. or perhaps MSOA, where the M is micro. What are your feelings? Oh, uh, what are my feelings? I think they're probably similar to yours. Broadly, I'm in the less favorable camp. I'm not a fan of services. And most of the versions that I've seen, most of the thinking that I run into commonly in the work that we do seems less than ideal. The primary thing that I think we see a lot of is individuals or teams make a bit of a mess. They have a code base that's literally messy. Things are strewn about. Classes are coupled together in ways that they shouldn't be. Behavior is spread all across things. And they think, okay, we'll just split it physically into different repositories, different deployable pieces of the system. And that will enforce new sanity, new clarity. We'll have these new things and we definitely won't make a mess of those. Do you think this is related to, like in the old days, what we would do with that information is we would just rewrite the system as is. We'd just be like, ah, time for a rewrite. Oh, our service is the new rewrite. <laughs> our service is the new rewrite. Like, is, is, is are, new have rewrite. we learned enough that like, oh, well, a rewrite is just like taking your existing bugs and giving you new bugs. We just need a canonical Jolon software blog post about how services are dangerous <laughs> and then no one will do it anymore <laughs> and that'll be great. I don't think that's how it works. I've been involved in several rewrites too, but at least <laughs> it does seem to be something that certainly earlier in my career, I would like look at old code and be like, nah, I'm just going to rewrite this. Mm-hmm. But then either through my own professional maturity or through the industry's maturity, that's become at least something that you have a conversation about yeah, and probably less common than it used to be. But now I think that this is just something I was thinking of as you were talking. I don't have an actually well-formed opinion on the matter, but it's never stopped me before. Yeah, it's a podcast. That's what we're going for. So here. like, I, I, as you were thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking like, I wonder if we, this is a mess. We're going to rewrite it using services mm-hmm. is like a way around the argument of like, I like mean, you said the phrase there, we're going to rewrite it. Using but this services. is our way that we can backdoor and rewrites. Right. And that's what you're yeah. doing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, or perhaps you've convinced yourself that what you're building is sufficiently different that you're not rebuilding something. You're, you're building version two of a thing from scratch right. or something. And it will be better and different it won't just be the same thing again right. but you know in a different language or whatever yeah i think that definitely makes sense and i think broadly the idea that we have these problems we're feeling this pain it would be great if we could have sort of a an abstract banner solution that everyone can get behind and we just put it up on a single slide in a powerpoint presentation and can say like not that that's how anyone in our industry interacts but you get the idea we're going to do this thing we're going to rewrite or we're going to transition to a service-based architecture they're amorphous enough that I think people can say like, okay, yeah, I, I don't have specific things that I want to say against that. So sure, we can try that. And it's, um, you know, it's an opportunity to retry things. So I think the idea that maybe this is the new rewrite is sure, I can see that. And mm-hmm. I think they're interesting and alluring for similar reasons, but also dangerous for similar reasons. Why are they dangerous? Why are they dangerous? Well, rewrites have been talked about enough, I yeah, think, I in mean, another services. context. So let's, yeah, we'll keep this to services. It's distributed computing. You're taking information and you're spreading it across multiple systems. 
And I think that's the core of what what I find is is most problematic when I run into services. And to be clear, I'm I don't think all services are bad. I don't think all breaking apart a system is bad, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is. And the particular form that I see that I think is most detrimental is the idea of entity services. This is a term that I've heard. Uh, the entity service anti pattern specifically is a blog post I want to say that I ran across at some point. But it's the idea of say we're Airbnb, we're going to make a service for users and a service for rentals and a service for stays. And so the data of your system is distributed across these services, even though realistically, if you're showing any page within the Airbnb UI, you need information from all of those systems. Mm-hmm. You have to bring it together and you have to connect it. And ideally, you have to keep it sane and keep it you know, connected. And the thing that I'm hinting at here is referential integrity. Mm-hmm. As you distribute this data across these systems, you lose the ability to maintain referential integrity, which databases are amazing at, services are less good at. Yeah, and that's certainly been my experience with teams that are making that move to services is they do the entity thing where they say, it's not a term I'd heard before, but I like it. So it's almost invariably... the user that they want to do they want to start with for some reason which, which is, is weird, like because if there were a thing i could think is the most central to the <laughs> yes. whole domain it would be that one but yes yeah but they're like oh auth that's a thing right. i can take out and make a service and all like all the knowledge about the user's profile will live here but it's like when we used to talk often about like god objects and things like that the comment was uh in any system you have two god objects you have user and yep. whatever the thing and then the secondary god objects right so to start with user, uh, which yep. is, it's called a God object because it is connected to literally everything else in your system. To start there seems hard. Mm-hmm. So what would your advice be to teams then that are feeling like they're in this situation where maybe a larger engineering organization, there's a couple things I think that contribute to varying degrees. So you maybe have a larger team. So you have more people working on a code base, which can result in actual problems where like you can't actually get work done without a merge conflict or yeah. things like that. Or you have like, and maybe on top of that or instead of that, or to some varying degrees, you also have the other problem you talked about where like, hey, our current system is kind of a mess. So what should people in those situations do? So the short answer that I'm going to give is uh, GraphQL, I think, is actually a pretty interesting solution in this world. And it doesn't form certain other things. Like That means you're probably moving to distributed clients, having a multiplicity of clients. So that's interesting. But there was a talk recently by a guy named Nick Schrock, I want to say is his name. He's one of the three creators from Facebook back when of, uh, of the original GraphQL specification and the implementation. And he has now moved on from Facebook, but he's still doing a lot in the GraphQL world. And he gave a talk largely about some of these concepts of the return of the monolith and that GraphQL is a way to take systems that have been broken up into all of these different pieces and fuse them back together. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, we really want a monolith. We want to be able to talk about all of the data related to a particular page in the application or really related to our domain and be able mm-hmm. to use that to render a page, to build a workflow, to you know do any of the things that are part of the actual job of delivering functionality to users. That's, I think, one of the answers of like practically what would I recommend instead? Mm. GraphQL. And interestingly, I think GraphQL can actually exist in concert with services. And if anything, the thing that I would most strongly recommend against is the idea of we have a bunch of services. Our backend is split up into these different pieces. And then we have a bunch of clients. So we have the mobile app, and we have the web app, and we have whatever else, any number of other clients. And they're all talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So a given client has some wrapper classes within it that allow it to talk to the user service and the product service and the listing service and each of the, yep. and the search service and whatever. Uh, and so it's the job of each client, N clients talking to M services, and you get 
just this explosion of complexity. Mm-hmm. That I think is the absolute worst case scenario in my opinion. Uh, that's the thing that I want to avoid the most. So as an initial start, GraphQL can be this sort of choke point between the two. All client communication goes through the GraphQL endpoint, which then potentially, if this is you know the way your backend is architected, that can fan back out to a bunch of services. And then that information is, again, comes back together as you get those responses from each of the services. GraphQL merges it together, produces that uniform schema-driven response object, and then that's what the clients work with. So that's one potential answer. The other is I would really focus on that idea of entity service anti-pattern. I think that's where I see the most difficulty and the most headaches come into play. So wherever you can avoid that, keep your core domain objects together as much as possible, and instead think about extracting more functional services. So there are a lot of things that I think we take for granted that are services within our systems, like the database. That is a distributed piece of our application. I think we're all in agreement that that should not be living in the Ruby code or running as part of the the Rails process. Mm-hmm. That just seems to make sense now. But it is a distributed version. There's you know network communication that's happening there. Similarly, search, I think, is one. Like if you have Elasticsearch or Algolia, I think is the new mm-hmm. thing. Yep. Any of those, I think those make sense. And part of what makes sense to me in that case is that whole thing can go down and we can rebuild it because the canonical data lives in the core system. Mm-hmm. But if Algolia or Elasticsearch, if their index goes down, It would be costly in the sense that it would take a bunch of time to get that service back up, but Mm -hmm. we could do that. And we could potentially keep the core application running even while that's down. Whereas if your user service goes down, stuff gets hard, (laughs) like real, real difficult. But similarly, like email, that's another one that we push outside of our applications. Mm -hmm. I think of it sort of in terms of if I could pay someone else to run the service and just sort of send requests and get responses from them, but it's, it's not our thing. It's not the core stuff that makes our app make sense. Maybe that makes sense as a service, but not your core business domains. And there's always been like, my biggest problem came when, first of all, I just like working in monoliths because they're easy to reason about, right? Yep. Uh, All my debugging tools work. I don't need to learn anything new. Yep. (laughs) It's easy to run locally. There's all sorts of great reasons, uh, particularly around developer experience for why that's better. And then obviously operations and things like that. But then, you know, you start to see the need for like, okay, these could be two. There's no need for this thing to be living in the same repository as this other thing. Mm-hmm. You start to see these needs. But like where I really started to like recoil was when we when microservice architecture became yep. like a thing. And that's where I think you end up with this entity pattern thing you were talking about where you uh, you just have a system for everything, for every mm-hmm. little slice of data. So I think that there's probably, like you mentioned, there's several things that we already are embracing distributed computing for, right? And there's mm-hmm. probably parts of your own applications where you look at that and you're like, hmm, really this could live entirely on its own. It could just be called over a web service or any number of remote, mm-hmm. you know, remote procedure call, whatever it might be, right? And that could make sense. But I feel like those are largely the exception. And also they're difficult to know for sure until you've already built them, yeah. right? Like if you start from the beginning where you're like, and this is a thing I started to see years ago and maybe not so much now, but two, three years ago, it was just like you would talk to people doing a brand new thing and they'd be like, oh, we're doing service-oriented architecture from the start. Yeah, services first. Right. Yeah. And gosh, I can't think of a way, I can't think of anything I'd rather do less. Um, <laughs> yeah, just you're figuring of, things out and you're trying to get stuff in front of users as quickly right, as possible. You don't even know if what you have, anybody's going to care about and yeah. you're optimizing for a thing, that a problem that you're going to have 10 years from now. Right. Or five years from now or if you're really phenomenally successful three years from now. Yeah. And think of all the time that you're going to spend 
operationally and development wise and thinking about things and getting it wrong and being like, okay, now we, and like getting it wrong when you've split things across services is more expensive than getting it wrong when, you know, the fix to getting it wrong in your monolith is like, oh, you just refactor the existing code or something yep. like that. Which admittedly can be hard. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to trivialize that <laughs> no. because it's all, it's the like changing out the engine and mm-hmm. a plane flying at 30,000 feet or whatever. But I think it is coming back to that idea of like, we made a mess. Let's get a new place. We definitely won't make a mess there. You might make a mess there. What if instead you were to just clean up the one place you have? Right. Um, which again, I, I don't want to trivialize that because that can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. But and I've certainly been on projects where they get so far down this hole where you're just like, oh, this is painful to look at. Yeah. And I can empathize with the like, what if I didn't have to look at this anymore? Right. <laughs> right. And there's probably a time when those are the right decisions. I just think that it, it, it's far too easy to just be like, oh, well, we just break this apart and make it smaller. That's hard. It's harder to mess up things that are small which I have seen time and again is not true because the small things become bigger like because you're like, oh, well, I need this data as well. And so you make the system a little bigger. And these microservices tend not to stay micro for very long. Mm-hmm. And then if they happen to stay micro, then you've got a whole host of other problems. And the other thing is like each of those nodes that you're extracting can be relatively simple, but the edge connecting it back to the main thing and any other edges to any other services, mm-hmm. that's additional complexity that... Uh, really can't be overstated. uh, One of the things that comes to mind that is sort of like, it highlights the complexity of this whole world is Netflix's Chaos Monkey, which is code that they have running in production that randomly shuts off, throttles, or just kills other services because they know that they can't rely on these things. But it's a way to force their engineers to think about this, saying like, not only will it happen because it will happen, but it will also happen because we're going to do it to you. It's going to happen regularly versus it's going to happen exceptionally. So we need to build every single system such that it is fault tolerant to every other system that it's interacting with. And if you're going to do services, that feels like an honest way to go about it. But that feels crazy. (laughs) It feels like a crazy thing that we've gotten ourselves into. And the answer for Netflix, right? The answer for Netflix is AWS going down can't take down Netflix. Like, but I don't, it has multiple it has. times. Sure. <laughs> this is an example of something that they might right. reasonably say. Yeah. Right. And they may decide, like, we need fault tolerance. We're going to use this other cloud as right. well. We need to fail over to Google Cloud. Right. Or and maybe like they that. have. I don't, I don't know what their situation is. I'm just mm-hmm. using them as an example of a large company that has the budget and ability to do that. Yeah. Whereas your project, you might just be like, you know what? If AWS goes down, we're down too. We're definitely and that's down. And ex- that's an acceptable risk based on the amount of money it would cost us to do anything else. I mean, or, there was that day that AWS was down and they couldn't report on it because they were storing the icon in <laughs> S3 and they couldn't get access to S3. So it was just a green check mark because that was what was cached. That was a wonderful day. <laughs> Yeah, I I think the cost of that sort of correctness being built into a system or robustness, I guess, is often understated. It's like, oh, we definitely should be fault tolerant to everything. It's like, ideally, yes, but we also need to ship features and we also need to fix some bugs that we saw last week. And can we really pay the cost to build that kind of resiliency into the system? Netflix probably can. I don't know that most companies can. Right. We kind of had our own version of this conversation recently, like a couple weeks ago, or is it last week, a week ago, when GitHub went down, or Slack went down, and then a week later, GitHub went down. Yep. So there were some internal threads talking about like, okay, when Slack's down, what do we do? Mm -hmm. My preference is like, we just, we figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't don't need Slack to do my job. You know, there was some discussion and it was like, oh, well, we could, we have a fallback for Google Hangout chat or Mm -hmm. whatever, or something like that. And then it was like, well, if GitHub's down, what do we do? 
right? I can't remember what the solution to that was, but there was we had these discussions about like what are the trade-offs, and it's funny because I don't actually recall having very many of those discussions about like client application dependencies. But when it comes to our own tools, yeah, it was like oh let's have this discussion. We cannot we cannot abide by the Slack downtime or I mean, whatever the case. My, particularly with GitHub, my thinking was like most of the work we do is offline, so we can't open a pull request and we can't respond to a pull request, right? But likely there's other work we can do and Git has very cheap branches right. and we can just, you know, go off on an adventure. Right. And, and it also like if you're all working locally somewhere like or somebody can push something up somewhere else temporarily, like, right. you can just always. And I think that was the direction that we went with it is can we find some other Git host that we can use temporarily mm-hmm. while we lose access to GitHub. But right. um, speaking of monoliths, if yes. my understanding is correct, GitHub is an interesting example. My understanding is they are uh, still a single repository with basically everything, all of GitHub.com in it with very little extracted out. I think Facebook is surprisingly in a similar place. They have some things that have extracted out, but the core data model all lives yeah. together. I remember reading an article about that maybe three, four years ago or something like that. And who so, knows? It might have changed four yeah. times in that amount of time. But I think at one point I heard that, and it was far enough into their lifespan that I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so it works for them, works for GitHub. Um, Shopify. Segment. Oh, Shopify is? Yep. All right. Shopify. Segment just went from services back to yep. monolith, right? Yep. There's a bunch of hubbub in the normal way that the internet responds to things like that. <laughs> like, whoa, 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 you can't just throw services under the bus. And But I think they, they said some interesting things, and it was a lot of, we felt like we had lost control and couldn't keep the whole application in our mind and all of those sort of things. Is, that's interesting, because I, I feel like that's the argument you get for moving to services. It's like, oh, well, I can't reason about this thing because it's so large. Yeah, but it turns out, <laughs> turns out, taking a large system and making it into several smaller systems when it's still important for you to consider the large system as right. a whole just makes it more complicated because of all the different connections that you're worried about and interconnections and things like that. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, if, if there are pieces that can exist entirely separate, then like maybe they're, ex- they're separate businesses or something like that. Like I could imagine a company building an email sending subsystem within their application. They just, for some reason, decided that was a thing to do early on, and then that's how they'd been sending emails, and it handles DKIM or whatever that is, and sendability and openability and tracking clicks and all of that. And suddenly, one day, you look up and you're like, wait a minute, why is all of this in our app that has to do with a dog social network? Like That's what we care about is dog social networks, not email sending. Right. And that's, in that case, my suggestion would be that they go pay someone who does that as their primary concern and right. not maintain all of that code. Right. That's the sort of thing where it's an entirely independent responsibility, but those are pretty rare. Most of what you're doing has mm-hmm. to do with your core domain. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not to say you can't do services and can't do it well. It's just that it's certainly a hard problem. It and is. the longer you can, in my opinion anyway, the longer that you can avoid that decision and avoid that crossing that chasm the better off you'll be. And I think going back to your point about like one alternative is still kind of service oriented in a way, right? In that you still have a to each application's point of view, a central data store, right? So Mm -hmm. if your central GraphQL API is made up under the covers of several databases that are distributed, whatever, but like to the, to the client, right? In the case that you were talking about earlier, I have one GraphQL API that I can ask questions about the world. And I can say like, Hey, show me all of uh, the dogs that I follow and their posts and their friends and their likes or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so you have that ability. So instead of making services be like full stack, 
slices of your application. Mm -hmm. They are now horizontal, kind of like you have your, I guess, horizontal. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for, but basically you would just have different views into that data that could present their own applications. And those applications could be like maybe you have one particular part of your application that uh, where client-side application would make 100% sense and like be a great use. Then maybe you, you write that part of your application uh, hitting the GraphQL API from React and mm -hmm. use Apollo and all those various things. But maybe you have something else where, you know, it's an admin area of the site. And so you're like, oh, I'm just going to write this in server rendered and we'll hit the GraphQL API from our server render technology yep. or whatever. But you still have your central data store. You still have your referential integrity, hopefully. If it is under the coverage of one database, then certainly you do. And if it isn't, then maybe you have some sort of way to try and ensure that across mm -hmm. systems inside your GraphQL layer. But it's something that your client applications don't have to know about, right? To them, yep. it's all just one thing. So that was the first time where I was like, hmm, client-side applications or multiple, like, hmm, okay. Because like, basically my view at that point was like, oh, I just want to work on a monolith that is like top mm -hmm. to bottom, no APIs, no none of this stuff. Yep. And that was the first thing that made me think like, okay, well, I can see I get a lot of the advantages I like out of this. And then you have some diversity in client and each one of those things can make decisions about like what the best application experience for whatever it's targeting is. Right. And you can also keep, so if we're talking about web applications and we are doing any sort of client-side things, ideally you want to keep those as small as possible. So there are different ways to do that. You can either be like code splitting and have different pages in the app, be different mm -hmm. bundles. Those tend to get a little unwieldy when you get too much functionality in them. So the idea that the admin thing is one app, and mm -hmm. this is related to the client that I was speaking about in the previous the GraphQL episode, but... Mm -hmm. They're a marketplace, two-sided marketplace, and so they have fundamentally these two facets. There's the consumer side, and then there's the provider side. And then their admin team is this third facet, and mm -hmm. each of them really wants a different view of the same data. Mm -hmm. So one idea could be like we have the customer, the sales, and the admin service. But that's you don't want to break the data down in that way because each of those views needs to see the same sort of stuff just in a slightly different way. The user cares about the things that are just relevant to them. The seller side needs to see the things that are relevant to them, which will cross multiple users. Right. And then the admin needs to see kind of across all of that. Then for each of those, there might also be an iOS app and an Android mm -hmm. app. And so suddenly you have this kind of fractioning of clients. But if you've got that central API, ideally GraphQL, as, as we've discussed, that allows for those to sort of vary independently without breaking your domain model up. Mm -hmm. That's the part that scares me the most. So that's the thing that I want to avoid. But that structure does allow a larger team to grow and work independently and, and avoid some of those very real problems. Right. We actually, you and I, have been on a project historically where we uh, encountered some services. We decided we did not love these services, and we were able to convince the team there that we should unwind the services. And we took five different systems, uh, one of which being a user system, a mm -hmm. user service, and we ended up folding them all back into a single monolith. And it was a costly uh, and adventurous procedure, but I think by the end it was relatively clear that that was useful for them and that right. that had sort of things made sense again. It was particularly painful for them, I think, because they had started on the monolith pattern and then were sold a bill of goods about yeah. what services would mean to their business in seven years. And there was no guarantee this business would be around in seven years, Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was sort of just a weird number that happened to come up in a conversation, but it was the idea that <laughs> this is an investment in our future and we will need this sort of right. scalability, team fragmentability, et cetera, et cetera, that services in theory can offer. Right. And so there was a lot of like, that wasn't a simple sell for us to go <laughs> to say like, hey, what if you didn't do any of this? It was a... It wasn't a simple sell to ourselves either. No. Like we, you brought up rewrites earlier. <laughs> 
we typically, if someone mentions a rewrite, we'll be like, okay, let's mm, let's talk. And it's very rare, I think, that we've undertaken a rewrite with a client. Right. Like we internally would be like, mm, no, we got to talk ourselves out of this. This can't be the thing that we're doing. Similarly, in this case, I think there were a bunch of days like, man, what if we could just put it all back together? No, that's crazy. We can't do that. We can't do that. Right. But we kept coming back to that question of like, this would be so much easier. All these features that are taking too long and all of these bugs that are cropping up. Like it would just make sense if it was all in one place. Right. And eventually we convinced ourselves and then we started the conversation right. of convincing the client. I think the opening elsewhere happened when one of those services was going to be shuttered anyway. And it mm-hmm. was like, oh, this is an opportunity. And because of like just the way things are hard to do, like part of what was being shuttered was intertwined with something that was like vital to the yeah. app. Like, so it was like, okay, this needs to move somewhere. Why yeah. don't we move it back into the main app? Uh, like, oh, this other problem you're having, we can move that back in the main app too. And you know, it would still be a problem just in different ways. Uh, yep. <laughs> so that's what we ended up doing there. But we were also, I thought you were going in a different direction. We were also involved in another project where it was a much larger company and everything was a service. Oh, yes. Like it was one of those companies that was operating as if it were a Google. Yep. Right. But unfortunately, like this was maybe this had nothing really to do with services and was just a weird client story. But like I remember having several conversations where we'd be like, okay, so we're supposed to get this data from this service. And we'd be like, we're okay, so how do we get that? And like several times I remember being like, I don't think those services actually exist yet. And people being like, no, no, no. But people talk about them like they exist. And I Turns was like, out. Yeah, but I'm picking up a lot of like, <laughs> a lot of uh, this is theoretical. And it was like, oh, this doesn't actually exist. So yep. you, we had a bunch of teams just like promising services that never came to be or turned out to be much harder yep. than were anticipated. And so like, I think that speaks to sort of the like, oh, we can parallelize our efforts by mm-hmm. having like this team work on this service while this team works on this service. If those two services need to talk to each other, there's a lot less parallelization that can actually happen because you can talk about things you want to do, but until yeah. you actually start to do them and you're like, oh, it was way harder to do that. So I did this other thing instead. Is that okay? Yeah. This uh, sort of, uh, <laughs> I, I think, a lens to view that through is the same lens that we try and view everything through, which is sort of product centric or customer centric. Like what value does this deliver to someone? And when we were talking about the piece that we were building there, we needed a bunch of other services to exist for our thing to have any value. Like mm-hmm. We didn't have data to show. So the fancy data viewer that we had built would just sit there and do nothing without that data. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the services decomposition had been decided on, but then there wasn't really anyone owning the whole thing as a product and saying like, oh yeah, I'm making sure that all of the services are being built. By the time I rolled off the project, the services did not exist. And I think I spent six months on that project, which mm-hmm. was a surprising amount of time for us to be building essentially a fancy mock-up. Yeah. I mean, I think we can say what we were building was an e-reader of sorts Yeah, where we were supposed to get the content from a central service. And you think if you're building a e-reader that like the content is pretty important. But I think I was on that project for about eight months, and mm-hmm. I think when we left, we were, we still had like sideloaded the one book that we had access to. Yep. <laughs> yep. And we're like, yep, here's the one book. We also ran into countless difficulties around the system would be fragmented into the front end viewer, the back end service that would provide the data, the just like source book content, mm-hmm. and then another service that we were going to communicate with in order to store annotations and interactions with that. So, and then a user system elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about how to manage all of that and how to synchronize that data and be able to paint a cohesive picture, show a single page that was functional that a user cared about was really hard. That was mm-hmm. that was a very hard thing. And, and again, I don't think ever worked in my time on the app. Yeah. But hey, we got it working. Did I saw we? I saw yeah. a video of it once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a video on the internet, therefore you know it's real. Yeah. 
to rotate onto one more anecdote about services that is particular to us and to clarify that I think we try very hard when we build apps. That's that's a thing that most people would say when they talk about ThoughtBot, hopefully. <laughs> and so we have Upcase, which is our content learning platform videos and other things. And historically, it was just videos. But at one point, we decided to introduce a system for exercises. So this is a Git repository that you get to pull down to your machine, make some changes, fix the code, make some test pass, that sort of thing, and then push it back up. And then within the system that we were building, there was a GitHub-style PR review comment system. So there were actually a lot of different pieces there. And in this case, we opted to go for a service-oriented architecture. At that point, Lots of conversations were going on about that, so we thought we should try this. We should see what it feels like on something that we own, that we have full control over. And so the system ended up being Upcase, the primary system. That's where users would authenticate, and then that's where most of the data would live. But then we also had a Git server that we were running on DigitalOcean, and when people would push or pull, clone things, et cetera, all the Git operations went through that. Then we had a separate Rails application that was running the UI for the exercise system. So when someone would start an exercise or push up their change or make any comments, that was all happening in this external application, Rails app that was running. And then we also at one point extracted a bit of functionality around parsing the diffs. So as anyone would push up their code change, we needed a representation of the changes that they had made. So we extracted this service. So there are four pieces in that architecture, I wanna say. So you've got Upcase, you've got the exercise application, you've got the Git server, and then you've got the diff parser. Yep. Okay. So all total, some of those I think were actually okay ideas. Mm -hmm. The Git server, that made sense to have live on its own and communicate with us over different things. Largely, we could consider that system idempotent. So if ever it went down, went down in the sense that it wasn't able to communicate with our primary application and tell us what had happened, we could just sort of replay the state of the world mm -hmm. and catch up. So... There wasn't as much data being distributed as there was this functional interface. When people pushed and pulled, this system was in charge of dealing with all of the complexities around managing a Git server. Uh, so I actually kind of liked that separation. The separate UI for rendering the commenting interface ended up being a ton of headaches, just a huge mm -hmm. headache, because that was an example where we had split our domain model. Users existed in both systems. Uh, statuses of exercises existed in both systems. Exercises existed in both systems, but only in the primary application did we know which larger thing, which trail they were part of. And at some point, the other system desperately wanted to know that information, but couldn't do it. So we ended up with a complicated series of redirects. Auth was distributed in a weird way where each of them was a, an OAuth client. Basically, GitHub was the top of the OAuth waterfall, and then Upcase was the secondary tier, and then that fell downhill to the exercise system, and all of that was just such a headache. It wasn't clear how and what you were logged into at any point on that system, and additionally, everything was managed just as URLs from the main system into that second exercise system. So every once in a while, I would clone the production database onto the staging database, but it would be wrong with regard to the exercises because now production data is pointing at the wrong staging data and just mm -hmm. in every way it caused headaches. But again, to contrast it one more time, the little diff parser service that we wrote was wonderful. We would just throw out some data and it knew what to do and it would send it back. Well, it didn't have state. It didn't have state. That's, the, right. that's I think, the key thing there. And like, it's interesting because you started talking about this and you were like, yeah, we have this exercise system. And of course, I'm familiar with the exercise system. So I was like, oh, that makes 100% sense as a service. Yeah, that should be that. I don't even think that's a service. That's like, you know, it's its own application that happens to share. And then you start like, oh, but it needs access to the user. And wouldn't it be nice if when you're working on an exercise, you understand which larger trail it's a part of? And, yep. you know, wouldn't this be nice and all this other stuff? And you're like, oh, yeah. 
I want all that. Oh, it should probably just be inside the thing. And the diff parser can live on its own. <laughs> and the Git server. I think and both of those server, would have yeah. made sense. In that situation, we basically went through the same thought process that we described earlier in, in the app where Upcase itself was, I wouldn't say a mess, but it was less clean than we would want. A lot of people had worked on it for a little bit and then rotated off. And mm-hmm. uh, it showed that a little bit. Its feature set had grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk a few times. Mm-hmm. So we're like, oh, it would be great if we had this other place over here. And admittedly, that code base is sparkling and clean was an experiment in and of itself. But it was really interesting to me when I look back on it that like the diff parser, that happens to be a service that was written in Haskell. It was originally living inside of that code, the secondary code base. But Joe, our CTO, wanted to do a little project in Haskell that seemed like a perfect, well-constrained problem. He extracted the service from the Rails app into a Haskell very micro service. And it turns out that the performance, including HTTP round trip of the Haskell service was faster than the Rails just calling the Ruby code local to the process. <laughs> and as I say this, it's probably going to go down immediately. But I think in three years, it's never needed any support, which is crazy. It's just run. The diff parsing service. Diff parsing service has just been running like a champ. Mm-hmm. The Git server has gone down a few times, but it went down for unique reasons for it. And so I was kind of interested that it was siloed over there and the rest of the system actually kept running. So there is like that whole thing is my like... That's what I meditate on when I think about services. Like, there are good parts here, but there are bad parts. Where do I find the bad parts? And I think it's when we distribute state across the services. Mm -hmm. The core domain model should ideally live in one place. That's our monolith. And then, sure, little functional things off to the side, email sending, Git server if that's a thing that you have, et cetera, et cetera, data pipelines, that sort of thing. But as functional, as stateless as possible, and keep your core data together. Cool. Glad we solved that problem for everybody. so easy. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this who are like, this isn't that hard. And, you know, probably working in an environment where we're like, oh, this is great. I don't know. We figured it out. I've run into folks who are firmly in the camp of services and, and quite possibly have had great experiences. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what you and I and the rest of our team, we end up in a world where we see enough examples of something going wrong that we become pretty clear on we would not recommend that pattern. But that doesn't mean that pattern can't work. Services can yeah. absolutely work. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that also rings true for, like, when this happens less now that Rails is a little more mature, but, like, Rails would announce some new thing, right? Here's this new thing, new way we're going to do that. And we would be like, oh, that's awful. Like, current. Do you remember current as a thing? Like The, the re- thread thing? Yeah, where they were going to have, like, oh, you have a class called current, and then you can get the user from it. And you can get the, it was like this thread local, yeah. blah, 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 some sort of storage. And it was like, so that you could get, like, access to the current user from your model or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was like, oh, God. I've seen so many applications try and do this, yep. and you just you shouldn't do this. You like, shouldn't. <laughs> or like trying to think of other examples, like TurboLinks when it first came out, people being, being like, eh, I don't like. And I would get so worked up about these things, and it wasn't because. And I would talk to other people who like work at application companies, and they were just like, "Well, just don't use it." And I was like, "Well." That's all fine and good for you to say. Unfortunately, I am shortly going to find myself on a project. Like I remember when, um, I forget what they're called. It's the Rails feature where you can show a different view dependent on the browser. Oh, the like uh, variants? Yeah, variants. So when those came out, I remember being super worried about like, oh, this seems like a performance nightmare because you have one controller and it's trying to present data for all of these variants. And if the variants differ by the data they need, then yep. it's going to be a problem. Like you're going to have all sorts of like conditionals and performance problems, et cetera, et cetera. And I had some conversations with people and they were like, well, just don't use variants in that case. Like if what you're talking about doing is like just serving different markup with the same data, then maybe variants make sense. I was like, oh, okay, you know, reasonable thing. But then pretty shortly after that, I was onto a system that was like, hey, we serve different variants for our mobile client and for our desktop client. Mm-hmm. 
and also those show different data. And then you would look into like the queries that result from seeing the, the it, inevitably it's the mobile version that's worse because desktop just takes prominence when you're doing development testing. Yeah. And so yeah. they would, I would run them through like, oh, let me turn on responsive mode in Safari and get a Safari view and look at the logs of all the queries that are being run and the yeah. things that are broken and nobody tested or like, like various things like that. But again, if you are confident in your domain and you know, like, I feel like it's just a matter of like, like maybe there are people out there who are doing services in their own way and it works out fine and we just don't hear about it because it worked out fine. Yep. And the ones we hear about are the people who are like, hey, hey we've uh, we've made a mess over here. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> that is sort of inherent to the job for us. But I mean, I think there are plenty of folks talking out there on broader and conference talks and blog posts and things like that. And there are some solid examples of service success. HubSpot is you know, firmly in the service camp and I think it's working well for them. You can certainly build systems on these, but in the, I think everything we say on this podcast probably has to be through the lens of like, based on the collective data that we have seen, would not recommend. <laughs> uh, and here are some alternatives. I certainly wouldn't recommend it as a quick or easy, as an easy fix or as an approach that like just has its time when mm-hmm. you're like, oh, it's just, it's time for yeah. this, right? That's the thing I hear. That too. every application will right. grow right. to the point that they need services, right. that that's the, the natural evolution of any system. I would like to say that, you know, I, I've come up with a really great way of thinking about this, and that's uh, that it depends, <laughs> <laughs> which is really the answer yep. to any of these questions. It is. It what is. I, I mean, do? it's, eh, it's it why depends. we still have a job. So I guess, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean that broadly, like our entire industry still exists, not just ThoughtBot. But yeah, there are certainly cases, but I think there are also interesting alternatives, and we should spend some time with those. All right. Should we wrap up? I think we should. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 166. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. And if you enjoyed this or any other episode, please do share it on all the social medias. If you have any feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on the website. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.